From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And back in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Whew, he's back, guys. We got him off of our coast. <laughs> <laughs> I fled far, fled far to the west. You were like, God, I can't do it anymore. I need the rain. I just, you know. You miss it here. Oh, you know, I do. But, you know, yeah. I, like, I like my home. It's he nice. likes his home. <laughs> likes his home. You know, not as many, uh, not as much noise. I like Seattle. I haven't been to Seattle in so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should go. Yeah. Say hi to Zach. You can come to my 40th birthday party a couple months, you know. Oh. Ooh. Is it going to be a real blowout? Uh, it's going to be a medium blowout. Medium. Okay. <laughs> it's the as as discussed before, the downside to anything that's a real party for me at this stage is the kids still wake up the next morning, so, you know, you can't really like have the like I just will take the next day off kind of deal, which was what I would do if I were really going for it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, okay, this is going to be a parenting podcast now, but I just want to tell you guys. A, a, a Close real, your ears if you don't want to hear it. A real clutch move that uh, friends of ours said their friends did for their Halloween party this last weekend. Mm-hmm. Their friends threw this epic blowout Halloween party. I think also because they're leaving New York. They're moving. I think I read, they said to Miami or something. So blowout. Had the babysitter, right, through mm-hmm. this massive blowout. Then the next morning. They scheduled a babysitter to show up at 7 a.m. Stop. And a cleaning person so that wow. they could sleep in. So the babysitter showed up. So some, one of them had to let the same babysitter back in. Oh let the babysitter in who took care of the kids. while, And then the cleaning person showed up, mm-hmm. cleaned the house. They apparently ate pizza in bed and hung out and then came out at noon. And, like, everything was clean. And the kids were and the kids were cared for, and they nursed their hangovers. There you go. Fucking clutch move. I don't think I could ever do that. Also, my apartment's not big enough. Right. But like that feels like a very baller move. Yes, baller is a word for it. (laughs) I I can think of a few other words for it. No offense to your friends. They're not my friends. They're friends of friends. Okay. (laughs) I don't even know them. Never met these people before in my life. Mm -hmm. Wasn't invited to their party. I mean, come on. (laughs) Like. People, it might meet your parties, people. Anyways, uh, Joanna, what are you excited about on the site this week? Um, I might be snatching this one away from Zach, but there was a great piece last week on Friday from Shana Clark about why so many wine regions are dealing with oversupply right now. Uh-huh. And I thought the piece was super interesting because basically compared to previous supply cycles, which point to, you know, like market crashes, Mm -hmm. legislation, those types of disruptions that um, right now regions are dealing with oversupply because of consumer behavioral changes. Mm. Um, And I thought, I mean, that's kind of what sets this apart and why it's different from the times it's happened in the past. And a lot of like, you know, it's a problem of consumption. Like, I don't know, a few people were on the record saying, like, production has decreased, but Mm -hmm. consumption has decreased faster. And I think that's super interesting, really interesting piece, kind of exploring what's happening right now. Cool. Zach? 
Well, you're not wrong. I was going to mention that piece, <laughs> but fortunately, I always come with a backup because I read Ooh. lots of things, lots Ooh. of things on the site every lots week. So, things. and I know Adam usually goes last, so I can't. You can't take two pieces away from me. Um, and I thought Jeff Allworth's piece about the uh, hazy IPA kind of equilibrium point uh, was a really Just good piece. Um, interesting, you know, it, and especially in uh, some of the uh, talking to people he did and, and showing how in sort of different markets the maybe the enthusiasm over hazy ipas has in fact not at all slowed down it is still uh the hot thing and still very exciting and other parts of the country maybe there is um, a little more i don't want to say fatigue but just more of a like okay we've we've been all in on hazies for years now maybe it's time to switch back over or at least focus a little more on other kinds of ipas or even god forbid other beer styles uh just a really nice piece, well reported. I thought, kind of touched on a thing that I, I think I we'd been seeing a little bit of, but you know the the it's not like hazies are over at all. They're still yeah. very popular. They're just maybe not the all consuming behemoth that they were three years ago. Say, yeah, yeah. How, how about you, Adam? So, so since you took mine, uh, <laughs> oh no, no <laughs> you know I, I will say I, I would like to call out the amazing uh, whiskey reviews we're doing yes. recently, please uh, via. DTT or David Thomas Tao. Uh, I don't even know if he goes by Have DTT. You asked but, him no, but, about that? but his new name is DTT. Uh, he should do that in his profile. Just, hey, is DTT here? Uh, <laughs> David, do it, man. And he's, you know, so David has a really rich uh, history when it comes to and knowledge of bourbon. Uh, he's born and raised in Bardstown, Kentucky, mm-hmm. really knows the space very well. And we brought him on as our sort of uh, bourbon critic uh, a few months ago. He's been doing really great individual reviews for us of, you know, the really sought after tater bourbons, if you will. Um, We're lucky that he also uh, has had a lot of them, so knows them much better than some of us could in terms Mm -hmm. of tasting. And he uh, did a whole roundup for us this week of the recently released Sazerac Antique Collection. So for those of you who are unaware, that's like the the super tater bourbons, (laughs) like the ones that like you you're never going to get unless you basically bid on them at auction or something. Right. Like some some philanthropy, you know, silent auction thing is going to be there. And you're like, oh, yeah, I really there. There it is. There's the, you know, there's the Eagle Rare, but uh, he ranked. So every year they come out with these five bourbons and um, he ranked them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was interesting to read and get his perspective, even though I will never taste any of them. <laughs> we don't have them here. They're not upstairs. In little vials. Oh, yes. Because, you know, Sazerac doesn't send bottles. <laughs> come on. This is the antique collection. Yes. You don't get a bottle of the antique collection. You might try to sell it on the secondary market. <laughs> We don't do that, by the way. No. That would be rude. Do Anyways, uh, so talking about money, we obviously have to talk about one of the largest wine purchases in the last few years, which is Treasury Wine Estates. Who? Whoa, Treasury, where'd you come from? Australia. But, yeah. Spending all that Snoop Dogg money <laughs> and buying Dow Vineyards for at least a nine hundred, at least nine hundred million, but probably a cool billion dollars, right? Because uh, there's a hundred million dollar earnout, but a nine hundred million dollar purchase price with that hundred million dollar earnout. And I would have structured it differently if it were me. I might have done like a six hundred million dollar, <laughs> and then like you know work my way up, but. Uh, Dow is not a very. I think. I think what's surprising to a lot of people, Dow is not a very old vineyard. It is not a Napa vineyard. It is so Paso. Right? Er, yeah, early two thousands. Paso, not Napa, does uh, very well known for Bordeaux style blend wines as well as Cabernet. So 
very much in the style of Napa. Um, but I think, you know, the argument that was made in the press release uh, is that it was purchased because of its rabid fan base, its younger fan base, though I spoke with both of you yesterday when we were talking about discussing this topic. I've done a lot of research. I can find nowhere. So if you listen to the podcast and you actually have figures, you can find <laughs> nowhere any official data that says what the average age of the Dow consumer is. The people that I see post a lot about Dow are Gen X, okay. which is younger than boomers. Yes. But the press release just says younger. So that I find very interesting because I don't know a lot of millennials that drink Dow, but I could be wrong. Uh, one of our other writers says that they think they a lot that's, of that's, that's her impression. That's Hannah's impression. Yes. I see that there are Dow dinners that are done and I see a lot of Gen X posting about it. So, okay. but again, it is a younger demographic um, and it's a, a cheaper price point than Napa. Right. Yeah. It's the, their argument is that they, you know, they compete with a Napa with a with a premium Napa wine at a lower price. Uh, but also the thing about Dow that's really interesting is they've become very well known for their hospitality and their experiences at Dow and especially for a party they throw every year for members. So okay. if you are a Dow club member, it's very exclusive. You get you can get invited to this party and every year they have themes uh, they've done the Great Gatsby theme. They've done Moulin Rouge, et cetera. People apparently go all out. They have thrown the party not only at the winery, at the amazing facility they've had, but at other like very famous venues in the area, including Hearst Castle. They threw the party at one year. So, like again, huge blowout, which I think helps reinforce this rabid fan base who uses it as an excuse to come to the region to party with them, you know, and then to drink and buy more of the wines. So clearly, it is a lifestyle luxury brand. It is not just the wine, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is what helped it demand such a high purchase price. Uh, but I, I don't know, Zach, Joanna, like, what was your reactions when you first saw this news? Because for me, initially, I was just like, wait, holy shit, Dow? I mean, I knew it was big, but like a billion dollars? Yeah. That's a lot of money. See, I don't, I was not aware of Dow before I started like working at Vine Pair. Yeah. Like, that's not, it, to me, it's not a brand that has the same. Um, it's not Camus. Yeah, I was just going to say it's not Camus, right? Like, I feel like I was very aware of Camus before I started working at Vine Pair, but Dow, I'm not, I, I feel like it is, it seems like it is a very particular um, fan base, like you were saying. Um, yeah. At my end, what, as I was speaking with Hannah and Tim about this yesterday, like, their impression is that the person who drinks Dow is kind of like a, Financy type of person with money. Yeah, but clearly not the kind of money that's Napa money because the whole. I think yes, there are some Dow wines that are expensive, are more expensive, right? Yes, yeah. but like part of Dow's whole, uh, you know, marketing messaging is that they are more affordable. I mean, right. if you go back, I was going back and reading articles from four years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and that's a lot of what they would message out there is that they felt that they had. The same high quality terroir, the same sort of even they thought better phenol. Their whole thing was like if you judge the phenolics, you will see that the phenolics of our wine are equal or better to the phenolics of a Napa wine. I only judge by phenolics. Me too. When I'm I mean, that's just how I drink. Mm-hmm. And then they would they would tell that their wines were twenty to forty dollars, and right. they thought could compete against a hundred to two hundred dollar wine. Now, yes, they do have like I think one's called Heart of a Lion. I think that's their like highest end wine. That's, you know, well above, I think it's well above 150 bucks a bottle. Yeah. But they have more affordable as well. 
I had always also known of that. The only way I knew of them, to be honest, was they they a few years in a row did very posh rosé releases yeah, in Tim New York. Yeah, Tim was talking about that. Where they clearly spent a lot of money. I mean, they clearly understand that to, to, to build a luxury wine, you spend cash. Right. And they did, you know, very, very opulent press lunches and dinners where, like, I think part of the reason that you they were able to get the kind of caliber press they were able to get is because of where they did them. And, like, look, let's be a lesson to everyone here. This is a lesson that I learned very early on in my very early days of my first job out of college in the music business is, like, whenever we would want to get a really big music journalist to come and talk about, learn about, and listen to our bands, we always did a lunch somewhere that was, like, ridiculous. My, my go-to place, because I was based in Brooklyn, was the River Cafe. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you just Classic. Not, you're not going to say no. Right. You know, and like, yeah, it's going to cost us like a, a few hundred dollars for lunch. But like that investment of getting a writer for Rolling Stone or the pop or rock section of the New York Times or whatever is so worth it mm-hmm. that, you know, if we and, and then you we hand you the demo of the band and whatever. And we tell you to come to the show like and then you're also so much more likely to. I think that the Dow, that idea of theirs to do these ridiculously insane. And they were apparently crazy takeaways that Prescott very smart. Yeah, Tim said that there were human topiaries. Yes. Money. <laughs> I mean, Zach, what do you think? So a couple of things here. First, I got to be honest. The very first thing that crossed my mind when I saw this news was, man, this is Ballast Point 2.0. Ah, yes. And for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to. That's what I thought, too. Purchasing for <laughs> quite Constellation's quite purchase of, of Ballast Point. Uh, for a billion dollars. For a billion dollars. <laughs> And, you know, a few a few years down the road, unloaded it for, I don't know, less than a tenth of that, something like that. Uh, basically just uh, gave it away because it was it was not going to be successful. And to me, you know, I was doing some some looking today about, OK, well, what are some of the other what are some iconic California wineries that have sold recently in the last, you know, half dozen years or so? And some of them, you know, some of them are private sale purchases. So the price point isn't disclosed. Like we don't exactly know what was paid for Heights. Sellers, or Rombauer, or yeah, yeah Rombauer. I assure you, neither of them were anything like this amount of money, and neither. And those wineries are both in Napa Valley with a premium appellation attached to them. And I think you know it's going to be a really fascinating test case. I have extreme skepticism about how it will work out for Treasury, but I do think that you know that thing that you were describing, the both of you, this idea of okay, we're going to we're going to make the argument that our wine is as good as Napa Valley but cheaper has been an argument that the entire state of Washington has been trying to make for decades <laughs> and, and of late has moved on from it because it as it turns out it's actually a terrible marketing proposition because for the people for whom Napa Valley resonates as a not style of wine but as a luxury item and as a symbol of success selling them this a knockoff version is you're not going to sell it to them they don't want it and you know the kind of person who is going to buy Napa for Napa's sake is not going to be at a party and be like, okay, well, hear me out. This $40 bottle, which isn't from Napa, just look at the phenolics. Like that's not a conversation <laughs> that anyone's going to have. And so you're, you're betting that you're going to make a, you know, a substantial return on this enormous investment, trying to change people's minds about a region that, you know, in Paso that has, you know, been trying to do this for a long time. And maybe this investment will help bring some of some pro- more prominence to it. Maybe Treasury being an international brand re- thinks mm. that or an international company thinks, hey, there's a market for this wine in other 
parts of the world that, you know, currently maybe they weren't able to tap into. But man, I am so incredibly skeptical. I mean, I just feel like for $900 million, you could have bought a lot more winery in a lot more prestigious region and done a lot more with it. And, you know, I, I think the other big question in this that this ties into both the article that Joanna was mentioning and a lot of what we've been talking about of late is, you know, can you really make a successful go of it in the wine industry selling uh, trying to sell a shitload of volume of relatively affordable wine? Now, granted, 20 to $40 isn't you know, 12 and under, there's more demand in that 20 to $40 range. But I don't, I just, I don't know, man, I have, I'm having a hard, I've been having a hard time figuring out how, like when I first saw this, I was like, is there a, someone add a zero into that price by accident? Like (laughs) I would have believed 90 million way sooner than 900 million. Yeah. I don't know. I I was thinking about this more from the treasury wine estates because I think that part is really interesting, right? Like they're trying to fill this they say they're trying to fill this gap in their portfolio mm-hmm. because they see fewer people trying uh buying the you know the value wines like what is it the 15 and under crimes. yeah the 19 crimes right when this is why they closed Caradoc mm-hmm. right yeah. um because they were like we just they're not making ends meet with having this having this like they're not doing the volume there right so i thought this was super surprising that they would spend this much money after they were saying they like they had to off yeah. like close this other winery. So look, I actually think the more I'm the more I'm thinking about this as you're both talking, I really do think that this is the perfect example of what spending actually investing in massive marketing and spend can do. And and the way that it can make you very relevant not only to consumers even in the short term, but to other companies that might buy you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think the this return on investment is going to be massive. You for, mean from Dow? For the, for the brothers, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's two brothers. Two brothers, yeah, yeah. And they both, both exited a very successful tech startup when they were in their early 30s and could have retired. That's how rich they were. Right. So, you know, they already had the money to spend to, when they built the winery uh, and built Dow Mountain, mm-hmm. which is now where apparently the inc- this incredible tourism center is that they've built. Uh, with restaurant and all this, it's apparently amazing. From what I've read, I have not been. It looks nice, but I think that you know this is the this is the conversation that we have all the time with these upstart wine brands. It's like, yeah, if you, if you want to actually compete at the super high end luxury segment or the lower end, you need to spend, and you need to spend in in different ways. And like everyone's, oh, wine doesn't have money. Wine doesn't have money. That that may be the case, but these brothers clearly found it and then found a company willing to spend them pay, pay them a lot more than the money they were spending to, to return their investment. Now the question is: Is Treasury going to keep up with this kind of, you know, ostentatious spending of cash in terms right. of you know how they will how they've reached out to the market? I'm not sure. I think if they don't, the brand will fail to keep up the lifestyle. Uh, yes, yeah, the, it, 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 yeah. this is a lifestyle brand at this point, right? They do very opulent dinners across the country. I was just seeing, I have a family member that lives in Baltimore and he had posted on Instagram. And I like, this is not someone that I thought was even like a, a big wine person that he and his wife were at a Dow wine dinner at a very fam- fancy restaurant. And like, mm-hmm. love, and like I posted like love Dow can't wait for this dinner. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think how, how much they do continue to do that will be reflective of how successful the brand continues to be um, because they really have invested very heavily in being a luxury product. And then what they're kind of proving is that if you spend, if you, if you spend a lot to be seen as in the same level, as these places, most consumers don't know or don't care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think they spent 
at a level which it got them immediate attention from critics who gave them very high scores. Uh, they were then able to use those scores to reinforce to the market of people they knew they were targeting, which is this market we talked about, finance, tech, consulting people who are just looking for a brand to single to the market that they are also successful. You know, I think we I, – I had, I had a really fascinating conversation today at lunch that I'm jazzed by. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand upon this conversation in, uh, in Verona when uh, I'm there. But she, she's my friend, Igleen Peshto, and she's the head of all of trade – uh, for LVMH. Prior to that, she was the you know U.S. head of um, Vuclico. Like she's been in the business forever. And basically, one of the quotes she said to me at lunch today, which we're going to talk about in Italy, is like LVMH's approach is like basically part of my friend. They don't give a fuck about the soil. They don't give a fuck about talking to you about the you know phenolics, the phenolics, etc. <laughs> they they give a fuck about talking about the luxury lifestyle. Right. And they've realized that even the trade. That's what they respond to. Think about how they market Krug. Think about how they market Whispering Angel, et cetera. And Dow is proof of that. Right. Right? That they – yes, they, they – in, in wine press, I read they talk about the phenolics and compare. But when I saw other stuff, like when I saw write-ups uh, about them in Bloomberg and in Rob Report, et cetera, it was all about the lifestyle. It was all about the luxury you know, high-end experience that they deliver with these wines that are opulent and rich and, you know, taste of some of the greatest red wines from the, around the world. Like, mm-hmm. that's how they're written about. And a lot is written about Dow Mountain mm-hmm. and that experience and going and, – and what the place looks like and how high-end it looks. And these parties get written about a bunch. And think about it. The first thing that happened in our own staff was – our managing editor telling you, oh, yeah, I remember this crazy fucking party they threw for press in New York where they clearly spent a lot of money. Yeah. I think they there, there's a press trip I, I read about. I mean, I remember hearing about a few years ago where they like, brought a ton of people out to Long Island to like the Hamptons and threw a party out there for their rosé release. Like they're not dumb. They spent cash mm-hmm. and spending that cash allows them to play. And that is the difference is that 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 ultimately does give you the press that I think puts Attra- you, attracts a buyer. The, right. Whereas. Just doing what Zach said Washington State Wine did doesn't work. There's yeah. too many other brands that have tried that forever. Oh, we're the, we're the same but half price. Like That actually doesn't work <laughs> because you know, who you, you know who you attract when you do that? You attract the H&M buyer. You attract the bargain hunter. Right. The people that Dow is going for don't shop at Zara and H&M. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't. But do you want to hear a very funny aside? So today, before we recorded, I was doing some shopping at Costco. Yes. And what did I find there? Dow. Like Magnums of Dow just yeah. staring at me. <laughs> because you know like, what? Because rich people like Costco a lot. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. But it was just interesting to me because they are trying to – I mean, it, we, we we invoked Camus before, and I think Camus is a really interesting and illustrative kind of point of reference here. And, and I think in a lot of ways, what – Treasury is sort of functionally betting on is that Dow will be the next Camus. Yes, that's exactly what they're betting the on. The slightly discount Camus, because what what they want is a product that they can make untold hundreds of thousands or even millions of bottles of, and still retain a sort of yeah that, that sort of air of this is a wine for successful people, not like a wine for successful people the way that Colt Napa is a wine for successful people but but a more more of a showy wine than than some and and a style that is obviously got a proven audience and stuff like that it just is a hard line to walk because in in at some point 
if anyone with, you know, 80 bucks can go into Costco and buy a Magnum of this thing, do you feel like, you know, you've really made it when you're ordering it or drinking it at home? I don't know. I mean, they're going to hope that the answer is yes, but it was interesting to me to see it, knowing we were going to be talking about this, to see it today and just be like, huh, well, there you go. I don't know. Do you think the average person feels like they've really made it when they can easily find and buy a bottle of Camus? I think I they think do. They, they do. But but I'm saying – but I, but there are a lot of other wines that have tried to be that and have failed. And right. I don't know why – I mean but, – and Camus is in Napa and that's a big part of it. But I – so I think – But Camus isn't a lifestyle, I don't think. I think it has become a lifestyle. It's, oh, really? It, it's, it's, it's synonymous with a certain kind of lifestyle, yeah. I okay. would say. Yeah. So so here's here's what I would say. I would say Camus lucked into it and Dow bought their way in. Sure. That's fair. But, but they have bought their way in very effectively. And I think that there is – if you look at – okay, so let's take two of the champagnes from LVMH, right? Yeah. Krug, accepted <clears throat> by the majority of trade as super high-end, amazing. No, I've never seen a member of the trade turn down a glass of Krug. <laughs> as well as more uh, educated wine connoisseurs, right? There, There's definitely people who think they like champagne and are rich that have never heard of Krug or know what it is. Vuv. Yeah. Everyone who's rich thinks that Vuvuzela is great. They all drink Vuvuzela. There's members of the trade that have different opinions, right? Rightly or wrongly, because mm-hmm. it's big. But Vuvuzela has scaled and is is everywhere and can be found in Publix and is still seen as being successful if you are able to buy it and bring it home. And that's what I think Dow is going to try to be. And yeah. that's what Dow is doing by spending. And if you look, Vuvuzela is on the same thing. It is. It is continue to put itself in luxury situations they sponsor ski chalets yeah they throw crazy polo, polo parties yeah. they're at fashion week like and that's what dow is doing and like can every wine do that no does to, to do that does a wine have to have a massive marketing budget in the first place yes and again these guys sold a tech company they're, they're doing quite well for themselves yeah but like this is the the reason i think that finally treasury would pay for this but again, I think the the huge question everyone's going to have to pay attention to is will they keep doing this? Right. Because if they don't, then yes, they will wind up selling the brand in 10 years for a tenth of the price, I believe. Because at that point, there has been nothing else yet that we've seen that signals to a consumer that Paso is equal to Napa. We, we already had that episode where we said we don't think that there's going to be another great region besides Napa. And I, and I, I believe that in mm-hmm. terms of marketing. So they're going to have to keep pushing the brand and that's going to take a lot of money so i I hope 19 crimes keeps doing well well yeah i was gonna say so out so in terms of a in terms of an acquisition for them if this wasn't dow and it was some other brand that fit that hole filled that hole in their portfolio do you (laughs) think it would have been a smart move for treasury like because they're obviously they're struggling obviously australia the australian wine market is struggling because of China and tariffs. And I mean, stuff you like read that. you read it. They say they need this to be the next Penfolds, right? And that's their goal. Yeah, I don't know who this would have. I, you know, I I kind of wonder if like they could have afforded what Camus would have wanted. You know, I don't even. You know, the families also. But Camus is more expensive than Dow, right? Yeah, I don't. I I think that Camus either. There's probably there's there's more informed people than us that probably have looked at this that listen to this podcast. Or tried to buy Camus before. Uh, I don't know what Camus probably would try to demand as a price, but it would be more than what Dow 
I think God. Yeah, you, know? you would or, have to or, bet at least, or at least twice now this amount. It is. At least now it is, right? Wow. Maybe prior to this game, Camus would have wanted a billion, but now you got to think they're sitting there being like, well, if Dow got a fucking billion dollars, yeah. we want two. Yeah. For sure. And no one's paying that. I mean, at least, or maybe they are. I don't know. It seems insane. But yeah, I don't know what else it would be. I mean, I don't know any other. Again, I was aware of the. I mean, I would say out of brands that were very famous on the West Coast that were outside of Napa in terms of famous amongst this demographic of people we're talking about. So we're talking about they're not wine uh, snobs. They're not like wine geeks. They're. People who like wine who are rich. Okay. I would say Dow was the most well-known okay. wine outside of Napa. So I don't know what else it would be. Like, is there one in in Washington that's like this? I don't think there's anything that has – there are wines that have – no, there's nothing that has the kind of aesthetic of, of Dow, like, that has that kind of, yeah. like, we're the wine for, like – yeah, for for the person who for rich who people. wants who has money and wants to spend it on wine, but also does not necessarily consider themselves a wine connoisseur. Like, you know, there's the winery in Virginia, RDV, which is is very beloved by collectors. I mean, and, and let me let me London, throw one but... possibility out here that, of a place that I think could have sold in this could have been another option. Okay, maybe like Jordan is the other place in Sonoma. Yeah. Um yeah. has like has like a very strong like is the kind of wine that people who have a lot of money but aren't like necessarily big big time wine like connoisseurs buy. But uh, yeah. That's about all I got. The only other one that I could say that I think it would aspire to this with the See this is why I think Dow is Gen X. When I looked at all the stuff, like all the images of their parties and stuff, it just felt very Gen X and it's aesthetic. I think the brand that would try to be the next this that is in Napa is Ashes and Diamonds. Oh, sure. If you look at it's mm. a light, it's a lifestyle brand yeah. that is expensive, but not too expensive. It is 100% modeled in the, in the millennial aesthetic. You know, you go to that winery. It is like the experience you have with the food is exactly what like millennials like. It's all the big share plates and like very farm to table. Everything is super Instagrammable. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful time. And they clearly, and they're clearly going for that kind of person. And I also think they've nailed the brand well and have spent the money to be in these luxury spaces in the right way and to be associated with celebrities and stuff like that. Okay. So, yeah, I think it would be them as another purchase. But, but again, I wouldn't say a billion. Like, I think, you know, Zach is very correct here. Like, 100 million, sure. Like, right. I think that someone yeah, – I was also like, wait. This is crazy. Yeah, it just seems like I guess I was asking more from like uh like analysts were dubious of this purchase, right? Like is this is this you know ex- is Treasury Wine Estates like expanding further into the US market? Like was this the right decision and then beyond that like spending this much money on this particular winery like was this the right move for them? I mean, you know, I, I think that it's I think that that remains to be seen. Um like, I I do. I don't know. I mean, what do you? I mean, what do you think? Do you, I mean, do you think Zach that this was a smart purchase? No. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I think I think like I said, I used the ballast point comp at the beginning for a good reason. Yeah. I think there are possible. It's possible that this works out, and that you know someone comes back at me a couple of years from now and is like, "You f- moron! Like, what were you thinking?" But I would be pretty confident that. This is just the. I mean, part of it is just spending this much money on a winery these days. Just seems like 
you know, it's just hard, hard to envision a payoff for this where it really like, I don't even know what a level of success looks like that makes this kind of investment worthwhile. I, I, you know, I'm sure the treasury people have had to, you know, put that out there for their investors and such. But like, I, to me, it just seems, it it seems very hard in the same way that buying a brewery for a billion dollars, it's like, how much beer could you possibly sell from, you know, how much craft beer could you possibly sell to make a million, a billion dollar investment worthwhile to me? It's like, how much Paso Robles wine could you possibly sell to make a billion dollar investment make sense? And maybe there is an amount. I don't know. We'll find out. But I I would be, it's, if you said to me, could a billion dollar purchase in Napa make sense? I would say, Probably. Okay. Camus being obviously the example. But Paso just, I mean, it's going to require a lot of changes in the way Americans buy wine. The world buys wine. And that doesn't, not to say those can't happen. They do happen. I just, it's not a thing I would want to bet my own money on, my, you know, billions that I have lying around on. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, and obviously the market wasn't convinced. Like the stock price didn't get that big of a pop. It took a little bit of a, a jump up from like trading at like 7.4 to 7.8 when the news was announced. So like mm-hmm. took a 40 cent jump. The stock is well down year to date. Like it was trading at this time last year, it was trading at over $10 a share. Now it's trading at like $7.50. So, I mean, it's taken, it, it, the stock is down over the entire year. It is up over the last month, but it's been down over the last six months. Like, so I, again, Treasury is this company that is sort of all over the place. And I think, again, has some big winners and things like 19 Crimes, but then has some brands that haven't been as successful so i think this will be this will remain to be seen but you know again it just seems like an insane price and almost feels like this is one of these instances where you know they wanted it maybe they just wanted it so badly and when the price was given they felt like they had to pay it you know like that scene in succession where they talk about how like if you if you want it bad enough you're just gonna pay you don't it doesn't even matter what the actual value is you're just gonna be like i want this i i have to have it i'm gonna pay for it and what most, you know, what, what smarter people than me always say, including Professor Scott Galloway, is that often in acquisitions when a company pays a price just to have a thing, that acquisition never often goes well. Yikes. So we'll see. It just it is a yeah. lot of money. <laughs> so look, and again, I also just I, I what I really hope is that this isn't this doesn't signal to the market to the rest of the market that like acquisitions are not a good thing or that other brands that have worked really hard and built really sustainable strong businesses are not the thing because that is what happened after the ballast point deal is a lot you, you saw the MA market in craft beer really start to slow down as ballast can start started to struggle and as people started to be like you know what? like we like this beer but like it's only thing that it has going for it is that it's a little bit more expensive than all other craft beers i mean that's why they paid that much for it is that it it had been felt at that time when it was purchased that it was the premium craft. It was the true premium craft beer Got in the it. sea of craft beer. And that's when they, they, when they looked at it, you know, based on all of the, you know, analysis you now read, they felt like that's why it was worth the price. But again, craft beer tastes are fickle. People moved on. They found other things. All of a sudden, like almost right after the ballast point purchase, you had the emergence of the crazy, you know, hyper local craft beers with the with the line culture and the, you know, the other half launches and things like that. Yeah. And then it all kind of popped. So, you know, and then people stopped really buying craft beer brands unless they were buying them for, you know, two, three times EBITDA, not these insane valuations they were giving them at the time. And I would love to know what the EBITDA is of Dow, but I guarantee you 
this is not two times EBITDA. This mm-hmm. is a thousand times EBITDA. So yeah. it remains to be seen. Um, yeah, let us know what you think. Hit us up at uh, podcast at vinepair.com and give us your thoughts on this acquisition and sort of the market in general. And Jen and Zach, I won't see you Monday because I'm going to be at my brother-in-law's wedding. I'm the best man. It's going to be so good. I'm going to give the best speech. And I'll talk to you guys uh, <laughs> Talk to you guys next oh, Friday. Have fun. Thank you. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.